The second reading is about David's daughter, Tamar. These two stories are hard to hear, and so we ask for the Spirit's help that we might listen well, even when listening is hard. We conclude these two heart-wrenching stories with a third reading, a reading of lament, which is a type of prayer in which the writer expresses one's sorrow before God, because in the face of such violence, we are tearful. A reading from 2 Samuel. In the spring, that time of the year when rulers go off to war, David sent Joab out along with his officers and troops. They massacred the Ammonites and laid siege to Rabbah. David, however, stayed in Jerusalem. And as evening approached, David rose from his couch and strolled about on the flat roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman, a very beautiful woman, bathing. She was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. David made inquiries about her and learned that her name was Bathsheba and that she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers to fetch her. She came to him and he slept with her. Then she returned to her house that she conceived and sent this message to David, I'm pregnant. Then David sent a message to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. Now when Uriah came, David asked him how Joab and the troops were doing and how the campaign was going. Then he said to Uriah, go home and wash your feet after your journey. As he left the palace, attendants followed him with a gift from the ruler's table. Uriah, however, did not go home that evening. Instead, he lay down by the palace gate with all the ruler's officers. Learning that Uriah had not go home, David said, Uriah, you had a long journey. Why do you not go home? Be with your wife. Uriah answered, Israel and Judah are under attack. How can I go home to eat and drink and to sleep with my wife? As Yahweh lives and as you yourself live, I will do no such thing. Then David said to Uriah, stay here another day and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem another day. And on the following day, David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him and got him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to lie down in his blanket among the ruler's officers and did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. The letter said, put Uriah opposite the enemy where the fighting is fiercest and then back off, leaving Uriah exposed so that he will meet his death. So Joab, during the siege of the city, stationed Uriah where he knew the strongest soldiers would be attacking. And when the soldiers of the city rallied and fought against Joab, some of David's troops fell, and so did Uriah, the Hittite. When Bathsheba heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to the palace, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But David's actions displeased Yahweh. Sometime later, David's son Amnon fell in love with his half-sister Tamar. Amnon was frustrated to the point of illness over Tamar, 
She was a virgin and his sister, and he felt it would be impossible to do anything with her. Now Amnon and his cousin Jonadab were good friends, and Jonadab was very clever. Jonadab said, Amnon, why are you sulking around every morning? Tell me, what is it that bothers you? Amnon replied, oh, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said, go to bed and pretend to be ill. When your parents come to see you, say to them, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. I want to watch her preparing the food and then have her feed me. So Amnon went to bed and pretending to be ill, when David visited him, Amnon did as Jonabad said. David sent word to Tamar and Tamar went to Amnon's house where he was laying in bed. She took dough, kneaded it, made the bread before him and baked it. She took the pan and set the bread on the table, but he refused to eat. Send everyone away, Amnon said. So they emptied the room. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into my bedroom so that I may eat it from your hands. And Tamar took the bread she prepared and took it into Amnon's bedroom. But when she handed it to him, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, sister. Brother, don't, she cried. Don't, don't force yourself upon me. This must not be done in Israel. Don't do such a vile thing. Think of me. Where could I go to hide my disgrace? And what about you? You would become as low as the most infamous in Israel. Speak to the ruler for me. David would not refuse to let me marry you. But Amnon refused to listen to her. And since he was the stronger, he overpowered her and raped her. Then Amnon was filled with intense revulsion. It was stronger than the love he had once felt for her. He said, get up, get out of my sight. Tamnar replied, no, brother. To send me away is worse than everything you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He summoned an attendant and said, get rid of this woman. Put her out and bolt the door after her. So the attendant put her out, bolted the door behind her. She was dressed in richly ornamental robes, the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the ruler wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her richly ornamented robe. She covered her face with her hands as she left, left weeping, weeping loudly. Absalom said to her, is it your brother Amnon who has been with you? For now, sister, keep quiet about it. He is your brother. Don't brood about it. Forlorn and desolate, Tamar remained in Absalom's house. When David the ruler learned about this incident, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon either good or bad, 
but he hated Amnon for disgracing his sister, Tamar. Now from Lamentations chapter 3. All our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Terror and destruction have come upon us, catastrophe and collapse. Streams of water pour from my eyes because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes flow and do not stop. There is no relief until the Lord looks down from the heavens and notices. My eyes hurt me because of what's happened to my city's daughters. Readings from our, our sacred, sacred stories. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Today we remember two women whose stories appear just two short chapters apart from one another in the book of 2 Samuel. And even though they are in our Bible, these aren't the kind of stories you hear very often in church. Or you might hear about Bathsheba, but it gets told to you wrong in one of those victim-blaming ways that places the emphasis on what she was wearing, or more accurately in this case, what she wasn't wearing. I want to help you rehear these stories today from the perspective of the women, because that is the way they need to be heard. It's the way they deserve to be heard. And I believe you and I are capable of hearing them. We are strong enough to hear them. We're sensitive enough to hear them. We're open enough. We're loving enough. And so I invite you to take several deep breaths and to keep breathing and to listen. Tamar, I'm here, I say gently as I enter her room. She does not respond. I do not wait for an invitation, but sit beside her. Her body heaves a sigh. Her brow is furrowed in pain. She does not want to look me in the eye. My feelings toward her are maternal. She grew up with my children, and they all share a father. I've never felt anything but affection towards David's other children because children deserve to be loved no matter who their mothers or fathers are. I've spent a lot of time with Tamar through the years, watching out for her when her own mother was busy with the king. And today I feel a stronger bond with her than ever. I want her to know that I am here in spirit as well as body, but I do not know how to bring up what has happened. I sit quietly. She returns silence with silence. Finally, I ask, do you want to talk about it? She doesn't answer, only laughs bitterly. Did you know that when I was a little girl, I hated my name? First, I am caught off guard at the change of topic. Next, I want to tell her she should try being called Bathsheba, but I hold my tongue. She is smiling in a disturbing sort of way. What kind of mother names her daughter after Tamar? Why, Tamar was in the lineage of King David, I retort. I feel this discussion is irrelevant, but I am sucked into the argument in spite of myself. 
I've always felt a bit partial to the heroines of the Israelite faith, so I rise to the historical Tamar's defense. Everyone knows Tamar, mother of Perez. She is a revered woman. I'm, I'm sure your mother wanted to name you after someone special. Why not Miriam? Why not Deborah? But no, I am Tamar, the woman who prostituted herself with her father-in-law. This used to upset me. I felt ashamed of my own name. Tamar is laughing loudly, unnaturally. I give her a quizzical stare. Don't you see the joke, she chides. I used to resent being her namesake, thinking myself so much better than her. I, the daughter of a king, deserved a better name. And now I am worse off than she. I have lost my honor forever. No one will want me. I will have no husband, no child. I am, she falters, a spoiled woman. Any chance at a life is gone forever. At last, the laughing halts, and Tamar shuts her eyes tightly as if trying to block something out. I reach to touch her shoulder, but she jerks away from me. I wait. Then I speak with a heart full of tenderness for this wounded soul. I, I know the pain you are feeling. She scoffs. You know, huh? You know what it is like to be, to be. She brings her voice to a whisper. Rape by your half-brother. I nod empathetically. Not exactly. She is getting angry now, but the tears are streaming in earnest down her face. Do you know what it's like to be raped and then have your own father do nothing, nothing to uphold your honor, nothing to reprimand the one who used you? Do you know what it's like, how, how it feels, how it aches? The desperate loneliness of her grief seems to suck the oxygen out of the room. I try to breathe. Believe it or not, I, I do sort of know how you feel. I let this sink in. And Tamar, I think I know why the king does nothing. Tamar is surprised. She was expecting sympathy, perhaps, but not information. What do you mean? What about it? Do you, do you mean he does nothing because Amnon is his favorite son? I, I could be wrong, but I believe there's more to it than that. And that's why I came to see you today. So you would know, so you would understand your father's silence. Tamar is intrigued. I am deeply uncomfortable. I doubt whether I ever should have come here. I dread what I am about to say, but, but if anything I could say would, would help her. I spend so long second-guessing myself that Tamar prods me. What is there to understand, she wants to know. First, I must tell you a story, I say. It begins many, many years ago, before I met your father. Tamar, I am a widow. Did you know? Tamar is incredulous. She has never heard about this part of my life, which is no surprise. Such stories do not get repeated. 
I continue. Before David, I was married to Uriah, a Hittite, who served in the king's army. He was a faithful, trustworthy man, and, and we loved each other. And I ached badly for children, but we had trouble conceiving. Every month, my body's blood would flow out, and a, my hope of a child was thwarted again. At the end of every cycle, I would imagine the ritual bathing to be a scrubbing away of the lingering disappointment. Stepping out of the water was starting fresh. I was new with possibility. One month, Uriah had left for war when disappointment hit again. The blood came and reliably so did the tears. When the time for bathing came, I could not work up the courage to make it hopeful. Maybe it was the fact that Uriah was gone and may not return for months. We couldn't try again for a baby for who knows how long. My tears mingled with the warm water. No matter how I scrubbed, the grief stuck to me. I lingered there, full of sadness. To my surprise, I had just finished wiping my body and my eyes dry when a messenger came to the door said the king wanted to see me. What could the king possibly want with me unless, perhaps, God forbid it, to tell me that Uriah had been wounded in battle or worse? I would not let myself think of it. I frantically searched for alternative explanations for this unexpected summons. Perhaps, perhaps Uriah was being honored for bravery in battle. He was, after all, faithful to a fault. Such loyalty and in a foreign man at that. Perhaps he was finally being recognized. I tried to believe this, but with every step towards the palace, my heart was sinking lower and lower into my stomach, felt as if it might drop right out of me and plop like a stone on the ground. When entering the palace and being greeted by the king, I was caught off guard by his amiable smile and his friendly ease with me, as if we'd been childhood friends. I had expected the great, honorable, legendary king of Israel to be more, I don't know, aloof and stately. He was casual, personable. I was confused. Surely he was not about to tell me that my husband was dead, not with that kind of smile on his face. It was almost a smirk, as if we were playing a game only known to him. I kept waiting for him to bring up Uriah and news from the war front, but he did not. Instead, he asked about my day, complimented my dress, told me about his recent accomplishments, made jokes, teased me until I blushed. You would not have thought a war was going on at all, not with the way he seemed to be enjoying conversation. I tried to laugh as best I could, but it all seemed so strange that my laughter was forced, my smile wooden. But King David did not seem to notice my unease. I felt very uncomfortable, and I wished Uriah were with me. He would know what to do, what to, what to say to a king. At one point, the king reached up and brushed his hand across my face. I blinked in confusion. Bet you've never seen the home of a king, he was saying, and he grabbed me for a tour. Before I knew what was happening, the king was showing me his chambers, and, and then he was picking me up like a child and placing me on the bed laughing. 
I began to panic. King wouldn't do anything wrong, I tried to tell myself. But why was he touching my hair? I wanted to ask what he was doing, but he was the king, and I could not find my words. Next, he was lifting up my skirts. I was shuddering, and I was crying, but he did not notice. I went home straight after in a disheveled mess. I didn't eat for days. I couldn't sleep. When I tried to get up and carry on with life as usual, I found I was so sick I could barely function. Before long, I discovered I was pregnant. Pregnant. What would I do now? It seemed like a cruel trick, all that trying to conceive, and suddenly I was with child after one unsolicited encounter. How I moaned and wept. Uriah would know immediately the child wasn't his. But how could I tell him the truth? The truth about his king, the man he so loyally served. Would he even believe me? Would I be risking my life to tell such a tale about the king himself? It'd be his word against mine. After much agony, I decided to write the king and tell him of my condition. Maybe, maybe if he knew there was a child, he would, he would see fit to intervene, to, to help somehow. I didn't know what else to do. Maybe the king would know how to fix this. Maybe he could explain things to Uriah. I was holding out hope for a miracle, but nothing, nothing could have prepared me for what happened instead. Within days of my sending the note, Uriah was dead. They called it a war casualty, but of course I knew better. I was stunned. I was devastated. I was distraught. I was bewildered beyond all reckoning. What human being could do such a thing to an innocent man? How could that be the way to fix it? Some days I blamed myself. If I had not written that note to the king, perhaps my husband would still be alive. I tried to console myself that I never could have guessed such an outcome. Despite what had happened to me, I still believed it would help things to tell the king that God's chosen one would surely come to my aid. Eventually, King David made a public show of comforting the poor widow of Uriah the Hittite, who'd been slain in battle, and invited her into his home. The people found it romantic. My friends were delighted I would be a queen. I was despondent. What choice did I have? None, of course. I had no choice. No more choice than you do, my daughter, Tamar. For what has happened to you cannot be undone, and you are not allowed any recompense for your sorrows. I know this because I have lived it. I have been so intent on telling my story that I just now focus on Tamar's face to see what she is thinking. There is shock there, also pain. Empathy, too, which makes my eyes water. Her compassion makes me feel as if a huge weight has been lifted from my body. I am not as sure about this next part, but I feel I must say it, and her kind eyes give me permission to continue. I tell you all of this, my sweet Tamar, because I know why the king does not confront Amnon. 
The king is thinking like father, like son. He cannot bear to confront the animal inside himself by confronting the one inside his son. He was repentant once, you know, I add, when challenged by the prophet Nathan. But he does not have the courage to be Nathan to his own son because he knows he's got blood on his hands. He cannot endure facing the truth about what happened to you, his daughter, because he cannot endure knowing that he has created more men like himself. Tamar is reflected, reflective. How do you know this? Sometimes women know things. After a moment's thought, I add, I imagine for him this whole tragic affair with you is a little like entering a brothel and finding your own daughter among the women of the night. You like to believe all the women are willing participants, that no one is being coerced or forced. But when it is your daughter, you cannot help but notice the dark circles under her eyes, the bruises on her arm, the defeated look in her eye, the cry for help that is etched between the wrinkles on her brow. But what can you do? Who can you beat up in her honor? For she is among the women, but you, you are among the patrons. There would be no business for her violations if you were not a customer. You were a customer breeding more customers with your silence, but to speak up would be your ruin. Tamar shakes her head. Sometimes a man needs ruining. I take her hand. I wish the king was willing to be ruined for you. She squeezes my hand in return. I wish the same for you. I look into her eyes. Tamar, we need a better king. Tamar, isn't that the truth? God have mercy. Me, I pray for one every day. May God send a new king. Tamar, maybe someday. Me, we can only hope. How long, O oh Lord, Tamar cries passionately. How long indeed, I echo. Spontaneously we erupt in priest-like prayers and woman-like moans. In between our groans we cry, how long, O oh Lord, must we wait? How long will you forget? How long must we bear pain in our hearts and sorrow in our souls? Tamar laments, no one even knows what happened to us. My father will be remembered for his battles and his victories, but no one will remember us. I tell her, but my child, I remember. I know what happened to you. And you know what happened to me because now I've told you. And now that I've told someone, perhaps we should never stop telling. Perhaps someday the world can be a different place. Perhaps someday God will come to our aid. Perhaps God will hear our prayers and send a savior. And it is with that hope that we continue to pray all our days. And with the passing of time, we begin to feel that our hope is not in vain. We do not know where this assurance comes from. We do not know how or when, but we feel it, know it deep within that someday, somehow, God will send a very different kind of king. We can only pray that the world will be ready to receive him. He will be a man willing to be ruined on behalf of the people. A man willing to divest himself of power. To really see the person in front of him and know their suffering. If only the people will respond in like courage. Amen.